0: Well, grab your Bibles and turn to John chapter 15, John 15. We're going to be covering the end of 15 through 16 today. And uh, we are in the life and the times of Christ. And it is miraculous, miraculous stuff. As we've already talked about, if you've been here for a bit, John's chapter 13 through 17 is all takes place in one evening. How many evenings? One, this is a one evening conversation, and as I've mentioned, when we kind of uh, take it Sunday at a time, actually we're going to be covering uh, one evening, if you will, over the month of January, that's what's ending up happening, and each time we take a Sunday, we kind of lose context of what's going on, but this is an evening with Christ and the disciples. Uh, just to kind of bring everybody up to date on it, chapter 13, Jesus uh, Garbs himself in the look of the lowest of servants washes the disciples feet Tells them that they need to love one another like that Then during dinner Judas gets up and heads out the door Right in the middle of all this heads out the door to betray him And it's just it's at that time after judas leaves and jesus turns to his guys and he ups the ante in essence he says listen guys I just said love one another like that, but I'm telling you this. I command you to love one another like that. And in fact, that is to be one of the central uh, marking points of who you are and what you are about. You are to be a loving one and other people. And then after that, he goes into talking about uh, how they're equipped, how they're helped, and all that God has done for them and all that they have to hang on to be able to do that. In chapter 14, and then in chapter 15, last Sunday, we talked about how Jesus gives this illustration of the vine and the branches and fruit. And in this illustration, he basically says, guys, this is what I expect of you. In other words, I think here's how the conversation goes. I think there's a real flow to what Jesus is doing. He gives a command, Judas leaves, gives a command. Then he tells them all that he has equipped them to be able to do that. And then he tells them that he expects them to abide and to produce fruit. And I think today what we get into now is we get into this whole discussion on what they can expect. What they can expect. So here's a command. Here's how you're equipped. Here's what I expect of you. Now here's what you can expect. So here's what we can expect if we are to be a loving one another kind of people that's abiding, producing fruit. I've called this, uh, here's what we can expect, two things, uh, the spit and the spirit, the spit and the spirit. Hey, before we dig into the text here, have you noticed, those of you who have some uh, age on us or gray hairs on us, some of us more than others, have you noticed over the years the increasing disdain for Christians in our country? There is an increasing disdain for Christianity. I'm just going to tell you, my wife and I have had this conversation where it's, I literally, I don't get it. What have we done? What have we done? (laughs) It's interesting. It seems without cause. But let's go to the text. Let's go to the text. Here we go. God, may you teach us this morning. Let's actually start in verse 16 of chapter 15. You there? All right. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Man, so much of the conversation summed up in those two verses. Okay? He's given a command. He's told them how they're equipped. He tells them what is expected of them. Now here's what they can expect. Here we go. Here's what you can expect. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it has hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. I think here Jesus fronts two facts for us in the discussion. What can we expect? Uh, Expect to be spewed upon. Here's two facts. First, um, the world hates Jesus Christ. The world hates Jesus Christ. Verse 18 and verse 23, if it hates Jesus Christ, it hates the Father. Now, I have to clarify for us this term world because it's like, so nobody? So like everybody's against me? Is it every person? Because I don't have, I know people who don't know Christ and actually they don't hate me. What's this talking about? Here's what this is talking about. This isn't so much talking about every person, if you will. This is really more referring to the whole created moral order that is an act of rebellion against God. That's what it's talking about. The whole created moral order of things is against Jesus Christ. You see, I go, it just seems without cause. No, actually it is with cause. It's a theological cause. There's a spiritual cause conflict that's going on. The Bible talks about how we're at enmity. We're we're at enemies with spiritual things. There's a battle that's going on. And here Jesus comes out and he tells us that the world, the created moral order of things, uh, uh, hates. Uh, uh, The word then, it says the world hated. Uh, Let me me read this according to the tenses of the Greek verbs, okay? Because it's really, I think, enlightening here. Uh, if the world hates you, hates is called a present active indicative or continuous verb. It means, reads more like this. If the world is presently, actively, and continuously hating you, then you, the word know, also present active continuous. Then you need to presently, actively, and continuously know something. Uh, understand all of this that we're talking about today, all of this we're talking about starts in our head. The battle really is all up here as we're talking through this, if you will. So if the world is presently actively hating you, you are to presently actively know this, that it hated me, and that's a perfect tense. That means this. It means there was a time in the past where an action took place that has ongoing ramifications. Can you say Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sin? one time? That act took place, disobedience to God, and that has ongoing, continuous ramifications for us today. There was a time where the world came in outright hatred of the Lord, and that has ongoing reality for us. In other words, the created moral order of things at a time in the past, acted in disdain, acted in disobedience to God, and that action has ongoing result of hatred for God today, to God and to you and I, Father of Christ. So fact number one, the world hates Jesus Christ. Fact number two on this is the world hates you, disciple of Christ. i got to tell you this. If you know this, if you just have an understanding of this, life makes more sense. This is a base understanding of what the reality here is. It hates us. The moral order of things, there is a theological conflict. When you and I talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have a conflict with our world out there and how it thinks and how it acts and what it's about. Why does the world hate Jesus Christ? Why does the world hate Jesus Christ? Actually, it makes quite a lot of sense. I mean, consider this. Come on, all together, just think through this. John chapter seven, verse seven, it says that Jesus testified that the world's deeds, the world's ways are evil. So Jesus comes, if you will, on the planet and says, listen, world... Your ways, your deeds are evil. <laughs> Could we all agree? This is not a way to build friends right off the bat. I mean, who wants to hear that? Isn't it true? And who wants to hear that? The world's ways are evil. You are wicked to the bone. Hey, want to be my friend? Okay, it's understandable why the, the world hates and add to that first corinthians 2 14 It says the natural person in other words kind of that moral order of things Does not accept the things of the spirit of god for the things of god are foolishness to him or her So it's kind of like this Let's take it this way. Think of it this way. Jesus wrote in the sand You all are missing the boat You are all sinners separated from God and therefore deemed to separation from God forever. Whoever wants to pick up the first stone, if you don't have sin in your life, go ahead and pick up the first stone. No one picks up the stone. So the world responded to him, who are you to judge us? Hey, dude, what is your deal? Who do you think you are to speak for God? Uh, I mean, come on. Uh, We hate you for what you say. In fact, die. That's what happened with Christ. Now let's take it for you and I. We say that the Bible says, Romans, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans, that no one is righteous. No, not one. Not one. Want to be my friend? Listen, that is so, isn't it, so conflicting, so uh, butts heads with how the world thinks about things and sees things. Uh, So the world responds, you're arrogant. You Christian people like you, so you have absolute truth? I don't, but yeah, it's not an arrogant statement. It's just, that's what the Bible says. Please don't beat me, beat it. But that's what the scriptures say. So when we speak that way, the world hates our guts, our spiritual guts, if you will, because what we're saying is what Christ said and the world hates what Christ said. Uh, think of it this way. As you and I live the one, love one and command and we abide and we produce fruit for Jesus Christ, that's living like Christ. And the world hates Christ. And so it hates us when we live and speak that truth. Why are we surprised when the world hates our guts? Seriously. I mean, I understand, but theologically we shouldn't be surprised. I love the fact that the Bible is so honest. And here Jesus is telling the disciples, I have a command for you to love one another. All men will, you know, my, all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another like that. And then he equips them and he says, listen, guys, I'm just going to tell you all that you have. We talked about that chapter 14. And then he comes and he says, listen, guys, I'm telling you, I expect you to be followers of me who abide in me, who produce fruit in me, bear fruit. Listen, guys, I'm telling you, where's the fruit, guys? And then he comes and he says, expect this. Just expect this. As you do this, I just want for you to know right up front, here's the deal. You're going to be hated. You're going to be hated. I think there's a couple implications before we go to the next part on this. I just remind us, uh, you're an alien here, follower of Christ. This world is not our home. And we forget that, don't we? I mean, there's so many things that I love here. I love you. I, I, I love, we were just down in Florida at a conference for a couple of days, and I loved that. <laughs> um. So many things we love here, but be very careful. This isn't so great here. This isn't really all that fantastic here. Our home kills this. Okay? Uh, Some guys a couple Sundays ago, I don't remember how we got on the topic, but it was just mentioned, why are we so fearful of death? I don't want to leave my wife. I don't leave my kids. I don't want to leave you. I don't want to leave some of those things. I I get all that. But yet there's this this grand fear. And I understand that's why we call it faith. I just want to say this. This is not our home. Let's be careful that we don't make it our home. Secondly, just be reminded the moral order of things does not like you and I. And I would just say this. Has it been a while since you've been spewed upon for your faith? You see, being spit upon is actually part of the reality. And I just wonder sometimes, I'm not saying we'd be bold and arrogant bold, I'm saying we'd be bold and loving, but yet we speak the truth. And we understand if we're people that are going to speak the truth, conflict is going to come back from that. People are going to push back from that. People are going to respond to us that way. We live in a world where, thank the Lord at this point in time, we're not having the kind of persecution you have in China or other places around the world. But at the same time, I just have to ask this, when was the last time you've been pushed back upon for your living out Christ if it's been a long time maybe you maybe I are backing too much off of who Christ is because we want the world to embrace us rather than hear the truth I would just ask consider that and lastly I just want to say this in our generation it may, I may be I'm 50 now I may be on the older end of this it may not happen in my lifetime but I just want to say what if we were persecuted in this country For real. Would you be surprised? I would be saddened. But would you stand? Or would it be like Mark chapter 4 in the second soil that says, It received the word with joy, but then when tribulation and persecution came, because of the word, they bolted. I would say this, that person does not understand the gospel. Because hidden, underlying within all that, is the gospel is about my comfort. The gospel is about my coziness. The gospel is about Jesus making my life all prosperous. Yeah, that's the American dream. Jesus fulfills the American dream, friends. Not. Jesus' love is not a pampering love, it's a perfecting love. And I just want to say this, younger folks, I would not be surprised that if in your generation you come to the place here in this country if we're still here where you are going to see real persecution for being a real follower of Christ. And are you going to stand? You know, that's kind of a command, equip. Here's what you expect and... Here's what he expects. Now, here's what you expect. And you're kind of like, (laughs) yeesh. How can anyone stand in that? Uh, This is what's so cool. The conversation doesn't stop. Because here, here's the point. In the spit of it all, he gives the spirit so that we can endure through it all. Let's take a look at the text. 26. But, in other words, it's continuing on from the conversation. Uh, In other words, they hated me without cause and they will hate you. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Chapter 16, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues, guys. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you, can you imagine hearing that right there? Whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. We see that in our world today. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, that's a whole interesting term. We'd love to spend some time on it, but don't have time. But they're going to have an hour. But when their hour comes, you may remember I told them to you, that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? Uh, Just let me quick comment on that. Where are you going? It's interesting. Jesus says, none of you have asked, where are you going? But actually, if you look in the text that we've looked at so far, um, in chapter 13, verse 36, Peter says, Lord, where are you going? And then in chapter 14, verse 5, Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? So why can Jesus say here, no one has really asked me, where are you going? Here's why. Because there's times when we ask things, but we really don't ask. Put it this way. I think what's happening here is Peter and Thomas and the other guys are so, understandably so, so self-consumed in all reality that when Jesus says, I'm leaving, they're like, don't go! Where are you going? Not really interested about where you are going, but what's going to be the implications of it for me? In essence, I think Jesus is almost point blank staying here, Guys, you've been asking questions, but you really haven't been asking the questions. And so Jesus goes on here and he tells us, Listen, no one's been asking me, where are you going? Verse 6, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. You see how important this is? Jesus is saying, listen, guys, please understand. I have to go. No, you want me to go. If I don't go, you don't understand how absolutely fantastic it's going to be if I go. This is a great thing. This is a fantastic thing. Uh, But if I go, I will send him to you, verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he speaks, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you all that The Father has his mind. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let's stop here. Friends, this text, just all over it, speaks about the Trinity. It speaks about the Trinity all over this text. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. It's just all through here. Now, I will fully, fully admit that the Trinity is something that I can't comprehend the trinity is one of those realities okay Uh, but hang in here because uh, what's so cool about it is he tries to help us understand the trinity and this whole passage that's here is directed about the holy spirit so let me just pull a couple things out and then i've got six here in just a moment we'll all pull together here's a few things that we'll just note one he's described as the helper or the counselor or the comforter depending upon which version of the bible that you have In John 14, 16, and in John 15, 26, he is the spirit of truth. The spirit of what? Okay, truth. He's not the spirit of emotion. He's the spirit of truth, right? He's the spirit of truth. Okay, let's see what else comes. Oh, by the way, if I remember right in John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the what? Truth. Boy, the Godhead is all about truth. So he's described as a helper, the counselor, the comforter. That's very cool. But we see also that the Spirit is sent from the Father at Christ's request in chapter 15, verse 26. We see the Spirit is sent in Christ's name in John 14, 26. And I'll just say this as we read this, you do not get the sense that Jesus is talking about the Spirit as this cosmic energy force, okay? Instead, you see him talk about him as a, we'll say it this way, theologically, that he has personhood to him. You think, I think it's really understandable why we have a hard time in grasping the spirit especially. The father, uh, we can kind of picture father, That doesn't that kind of have like a person to it, doesn't it? Father, and we all get that? Son, okay, the sun incarnate came and okay, that is person. But then when we hear then the Spirit of God, the, the Holy Ghost. Ooh. Isn't it just our terminology? Spirit and ghost. And so we automatically get this Casper the Ghost concept. But it's the third person of the Trinity. Okay? So I want for you to understand we're not talking about God as just one and and then he kind of mutates himself into three different like thingamabobs and, and the spirit then is like his I don't know something. We're we're talking about the Godhead is made up of three divine persons. And we see here in this text, referring to the Spirit of God, that the Spirit is all-knowing, the Spirit is all-powerful, the Spirit is all-present, and the Spirit is all-eternal. The Spirit is God, okay? Okay, everybody go like this. Seriously, ready? Okay, hang in there. Uh, what did Jesus want the disciples to know that the Holy Spirit did? Here's what I'm going to do. In chapter 14, when we were there, I did not spend a lot of time talking about some of the items of the Spirit waiting for today because there are a few things that I want to bring all this together. So right now where I'm going includes chapter 14, 15, and 16. So what are six things over the, this time period? And I'm just doing these six because these are the six that Jesus tells the disciples, okay? And by the way, they didn't even have time to talk as long as we're going to talk about it today. He just said it and they're like all right so if you're like uh, i'll put it this way every one of these could be a sunday if we were doing a series on pneumatology or the spirit every one of these six could be a sunday but jesus talked about them quickly so i'm going to kind of put them out there quickly this is building a base and understanding the spirit of god here we go number one the spirit dwells in this is this is incomprehensibly miraculous But here's the idea. Let's go to chapter 14, verse 7. Bringing kind of over this conversation, these points together. Verse 17, I'm sorry. Chapter 14, verse 17. Even the spirit of truth who the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Okay, he's talking to the disciples at this point in time. I'll just say the statement. The Spirit of God permanently dwells within the person who is redeemed in Christ. At the time that you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, for real, the Spirit of God permanently indwells you. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Chapter 14, verse 18 uh, mentions that Jesus says, you're not going to be orphaned to the disciples. You're not going to be left behind. You're not going to be unsupported. Uh, the Spirit's going to be coming. Hey, uh, Old Testament believers did not have the, imper- the permanent indwelling of the Spirit of God. We sometimes think, David, uh, Saul. No, maybe not. <laughs> Saul, you know, we just think sometimes back Like, they had so much. They did not have the permanent dwelling of the Holy Spirit. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you do today. Not only that, they did not have the full written word of God. You and I do today. Friends, we have far more than the Old Testament believer had. And yet sometimes when we have so much, we get lazy in it. But he dwells in. Uh, This is not a partial indwelling. In other words, the Spirit of God, when you receive Christ as your Savior and begin to be a follower of him, you get 20% of him. This isn't a layaway plan, okay? And then a little bit later, you get a little bit more of him. That's not what this is talking about at all. Also with this, this is not part of him. Or it's not a touch of him. In other words, because sometimes some people have this idea, well, the Spirit of God seals me, so it's kind of like this. The Spirit of God, when you receive Christ, which was a few months ago, by the way, when you receive Christ, it was not like this. Boom! The Spirit touches you. And when Marlon received Christ, boom, he touches you. And then he touches Michael, and he touches Karen, and it's kind of like a whiffle dutch, you know, kind of like a, Okay, that's not what we're talking about here. We are literally talking, and I'm just going to tell you, I don't fully get it, but this, this is what the scripture tells us. The Spirit of God fully indwells you, not around you. Picture it this way. There the disciples are, and they had Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, around them all the time. We've got the Spirit of God in you all the time. I don't think we have even begun to grasp this. And in my lifetime, part of the reason is because the Spirit of God thing, it's like, let's either go crazy weird with the Spirit of God stuff, or it's like, oh, we don't want to be like them, so we're going to the other direction. So let's not talk about the Spirit of God stuff. And to those of you who've been in church, you know what I'm talking about. And it's like, hey, how about this? How about we think about it the way the Bible talks about it? Okay, And in this, we have this idea that the Spirit of God indwells us. I wish I could explain that better. But it's just a fact. Take it on faith. By the way, the Spirit of God dwells in you. That should so impact what I do with myself. Think about it. Every attitude I have, Everything I say, everything I do, everything I look at, the Spirit of God dwelling in me knows every one of that. Why doesn't that rock my world more? He indwells. Secondly, chapter 14, verse 26, he teaches Verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Really important, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It says, All scripture is God breathed. How did that happen? Well, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21 tells us what did that look like? It looks like this men speaking from God were carried along, were moved along by the Spirit of God to write down what God wanted to be written down. And in Peter it says he has given us everything we need for life and godliness right here in the Word of God. So in, at that time, uh, they didn't have all of the New Testament that we have. And so the Spirit of God was going to be bringing them, teaching them everything. By the way, the Spirit of God teaches, teaches. Uh, today, so much of the common thinking about the Spirit of God is there's kind of this spiritual kabuki thing going on. I've referred to a little bit, this Casper the ghost woo, stuff that happens. I'm just going to tell you, it's quite simple when you take a look at this. It's not so much about this, I'm feeling this thing coming over me. I'm feeling a feeling that I like the way it feels so that I feel more like God feels and I can feel, 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 feel. We live in a feel-generated world. And yet here, what is the scripture telling us? Here the scripture telling us is the spirit of God comes along, helping us to bring back to remember everything that Jesus said. Oh, I think this applies very cleanly to life. So when I'm going through life, you're going through life. The Spirit of God is using the Word of God to help us understand how should I think? How should I respond right now at this moment in time? What biblical truth is driving me right now? And yet I will venture to say the vast majority of Christians are looking for this. I want to feel something in this moment from the spooky spirit so that I know what to do. I'm just going to tell you, what the Spirit of God is doing, he wants to teach you what Christ said. How do we know what Christ said? We know what Christ said right here. I'll touch on this here in a little bit as we come to guide. God uses the word of God. Spirit uses the word of God in the person of God. Number three, he teaches. Number three, he bears witness. Chapter 15, verse 26. Chapter 15, verse 26 says this. But when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the father the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father He will bear witness about me. The Holy Spirit bears witness about Jesus Christ Jesus Christ. He bears witness about not himself We do not see the spirit of God being in the Bible like this God the father gets a whole lot of attention And because God the son came to earth. He gets a whole lot of attention Golly, Wally, would someone pay attention to me? We don't see that happening in the scriptures. We don't see that. And in fact, what the text tells us is that the Holy Spirit is all about pointing to the Son. Oh, by the way, the Son says he's all about pointing to the Father. The Spirit of God is not sitting in this world where he's like, please pay attention to me, all eyes here. That's not what the Spirit of God is doing. The Spirit of God is saying all eyes on Jesus Christ. Okay? And I'm just going to tell you, this is one of the things in a number of churches in our country and in the world that oftentimes really concerns me. I wonder oftentimes if the Spirit of God would like to speak to a number of churches in this day and age and say, excuse me, but don't give me the attention. Give the attention to Christ. That's what I'm here for. Okay? But he bears witness. and He bears witness about Christ. He gives a witness of, testifies about. Uh, By the way, uh, disciple of Christ. In those times where you go, is this whole Jesus Bible thing for real? We do that, right? I do. And then you go, this is dead dog real. This is triple dead dog real. That's the spirit of God working in you. You see, because of the moral order of things, what we talk about here on Sundays and what we teach the kids and their classes and what we engage in with small groups and all these kinds of things to the world, it's foolishness. And by the way, we were born in the world. And so I just want for you to know, listen, when those times come and you're doubting and you're wondering and you're scratching your head and it's like, no, I'm telling you, this is for real, That is the spirit of God working in you to contain you in him. A person who right now, maybe you're someone who's just kind of trying to understand. So I'm not even sure if I really buy this whole Jesus thing, Bible thing. But you're here and you're listening and you're kind of trying to go, but you know, maybe I should check it out. I want for you to know this. That is the spirit of God working around you to push you towards the truth of the scriptures. That's cool. God is actively involved in leading people towards Him. That's very cool. Number four, He convicts. Uh, Chapter sixteen, verses eight through eleven. I won't read them, but it says that He convicts. The word "convicts" it means He shames, He he convinces uh, of guilt, He presses upon. Uh, The Spirit of God convicts the world, convicts us, and convinces us of our guilt. And he works on us, and he's calling us to repentance. Uh, You you know what I'm talking about. Or maybe you're there where it's just like, I can't leave the guilt. I I can't leave the conviction. Maybe, one, you're not handling the guilt properly and understanding the Scriptures. But maybe, number two, it's literally the Spirit of God. is just not going to let up on you because he loves you. One of the most loving things about God is that he convicts us is that he presses upon us. Doug, that attitude you just displayed back there, what was with that, bud? Ah! Leave me alone. No, seriously, Doug. What was with that attitude back there? That is the Spirit of God pressing upon you and I, pressing upon us within, pointing out where we're guilty of, so that we would make it right. Let's listen. That's an okay thing. That's a good thing. That can come from the Spirit of God. Convicting. Verse 9, he talks about he shames and convinces the world of its sin. He presses home the world's sin despite its unbelief. Verse 10, he talks about he shames and convinces the world of its righteousness. It's kind of interesting there, but I'd put it this way. The Spirit presses home that the world's attempt at self-righteousness and its spiritual righteousness attempts They all fall short. You know, the, uh, I don't know, whatever. Maybe there's kind of, uh, you know what, I'm right with God because I did some spiritual ditty thing. I did a kabuki dance kind of a thing. And so now I'm right with God. Really? Really? So it's just that? So it's just doing some rote thing like, la, 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 I'll do my deal. And then we'll be, really? What? Uh, Listen, the Bible is not about a religion. The Bible is about a relationship. And here in this, this is, he presses upon us to help us realize, listen, our self-righteousness. I'm just going to toss this out there for you to consider. In our day and age, in this recent couple decades, I think one of the greatest things that has become a problem for us in our society is this whole idea of this whole self-esteem. Listen, you are fantastic, and I want you to know that. Where's the scripture? Where is the? I'm not saying we go around and we go... You are a sinner and wicked and evil. That's not what we're talking about here. But at the same time, I'll just say this. For a number of people, I think a number of people in our culture today are wondering why do they need a savior when they're so great? I'll make the statement. I think we are in our day and age self-esteeming a lot of people to hell because there's no need, no sight of sin and fallen short on my own life. Do you see why the world hates us? Even just saying that, maybe for some that like pushes your buttons. I'm just going to tell you, it's the kind of thing where it's like, wait a second, but the Bible talks about sin and depravity. But the Bible talks about hope. Also verse 11, and he shames and convinces the world of its judgment. Now we have such false judgment Uh, The world's already condemned. I'll just go on to number five. Chapter 16, verse 13, he guides. He guides. Verse 13 says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Hmm. Guides, he leads, he instructs. And he guides you into all comfortable feelings. He guides you into warm fuzziness. No, he guides us into truth, into the truth of who Christ is. The word that's used here is almost never, as I understand it, is almost never in the Greek ever used to refer to decision-making. See, we see the spirit of God as kind of like the magic eight ball. And in our decision-making reality. But what it's talking about here is this guiding isn't guiding us into making a right decision. The, the emphasis here, it's guiding us into knowing Jesus Christ fully and increasingly. That's what he guides us to. And yet we just, the way we are in our Western world, we just think bullet point outlines and we think decision points. And so the Spirit of God there is to help me make a decision. Instead, this is talking about he leads us to truth. And decisions come out of our increasing knowledge of truth. So in other words, this is not talking about uh, he guides me into what vocation or vacation I should take this is not talking about he guides me as to what spouse uh, hang on with me here it's not directly uh, innate uh, it's not right hitting it what car what house I should buy it's saying this the spirit of God helps you and I come to know Christ better and then out of that the practical reality is we're able to make decisions that fit with Christ better. We bypass that, and we think he's just about helped me make this decision because I want to feel the peace of the decision. Hey, friends, we love that ooey gooey peace decision-making thing, don't we? Can I just say this? Be very, very, very careful because the Scripture talks about how we all, even as a saved person in Christ, have the noetic effect of sin, the noose of sin. And to think that within me, I have the ability, frankly, to even judge peace within my own heart is foolishness. The scriptures also tell us that Satan acts like an angel of light. And so even that can come in it. And we make decisions by how, what peace do I feel? And instead, I would say we are making ourselves too high. That we think we can judge by the peace factor. Instead, in choosing a mate, what does the scripture have to say about who you are to be and what kind of person you should be pursuing after? As a couple that's married, as a parent, instead of making a choice on a home to buy, how about going through the scriptures and considering what does the scripture have to say about the process? What He talks about buying a home, Absolutely it does. Finances, mindset, contentment, it's full of it. And yet as I see the world and I see myself, I'd rather sit back and go, help me feel the peace, magic eight ball spirit of God. I think in essence what the spirit is doing is saying, Doug, can I direct you to Christ and the word of God and consider it? In other words, next decision you make, what's the chapter and verse that has implications for you in that process? Let's get better at that before we lean on the peace. One conversation point. Okay? Lastly, and we'll wrap it, number six he glorifies chapter 16 verse 14 he will glorify who jesus christ the spirit of god is all about glorifying christ i've alluded to that he's not about glorifying himself notice verse 14 it says he the the holy spirit will take what is mine what is Christ." And he'll take all that, in fact, all that Christ has is what the Father has, and he will declare it to you. One more time, we see the Spirit of God is first and foremost wanting to be the one within our lives, directing us to who Christ is and what Christ is and the implications of who he is upon every aspect of our life. He glorifies. He is all about the fame of the name of Christ. Well, let me do this as I had planned. Let me just read to the end of the chapter, and then we'll pick up 17 next week. Verse 16, chapter 16, a little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, well, oh, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father, uh, got the idea they're confused. Uh, so they were saying, oh, what does he mean by a little while? Oh, we do not know what he's talking about. Jesus, verse 19, knew that they wanted to ask him. <laughs> That's cool. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will see me and again in a little while you will see me truly, truly. I say to you guys, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Uh, Women, you know this, who've had children. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer uh, remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask in the Father's name, he will give it to you. He's already repeated this a number of times. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name and I will do not saying and I do not say to you that I will ask the father on your behalf for the father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the father and have come into the world and now I am leaving the world and going to the father. And his disciples said, I love this. Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things. Light bulb moment. And do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Lord, thank you for the time just to be able to engage with you. Lord, you've given us a command. You've equipped us for the command. You've told us what you expect from us to abide, to bear fruit. And you also told us what we can expect. And that means that we live in a spitting, mad world at the heart of it. But God, we're not left alone. Oh, thank you that in this world that there's this alien reality But yet you have equipped us with the Spirit of God. The third person of the Trinity. Every person in this room who knows Jesus Christ as their Savior has been indwelt by the Spirit of God, sealing, yes. And all that is there... All being able to bring glory to you, the dwelling in reality, the the teaching us of you reality, the, the bearing witness about you reality, the convicting reality, the guiding us into truth and to yourself reality, and the reality that we are equipped to be people to glorify you, not because we have it within us, but because you dwell within us. Allowing us to do that. God, you dwell within us. That means you want to work through us. So Father, I pray this morning, especially to the follower of Christ, that we would in a deeper way grasp what you've done and who you are. You are too big for me to fathom but help us to fathom you more. In the precious name of Christ, we pray. Amen.